It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got questions from our audience. We're going to answer those, talk a little bit about the mass around uh, NSA's five zettabytes. Uh, also, uh, some more revelations on SSL security. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 411, recorded July 3rd, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 171. Security Now is brought to you by Manpacks. Manly goods on a schedule. Get started today and have underwear, socks, toiletries, shaving supplies, and more delivered to your door. Visit manpacks.com slash twit to get $10 off your first order of $30 or more or buy a $50 gift card for $40. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy, and uh, also gives you deep insight into how computers work, how technology works, how the Internet works with this guy here. Yeah, he's the explainer-in-chief, <laughs> Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Stephen. You know, Leo, I wondered whether maybe we'd gone a little, you know, was it there's the expression jump the shark um, or off over the top or something last week but i got a lot of tweets from people who said and even email mail in the mailbag that i found today when i was putting our our show together that they really liked the heavy duty you know wind up the propeller beanie episodes and so we hadn't i mean I, i'm certainly there are we have a, a widely distributed demographic and it no, no, no 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 you can of assume what this I was, is extremely narrow <laughs> well, within the extremely narrow demographic, there's a spread of people. I, I guess mean, that's it true. Must yes. be must be that there were people who were like, "Huh, what? What is he talking um, about?" Yeah, but I got a nice tweet, for example, from a, a Jerome who said, "Loved SN410 on Intel architecture. For me, having to rewind is a sign of a good podcast." That's right. He wants more. I would I would say that that's a safe bet. We our audience is smart. We don't. Uh, there's plenty of general interest and crappy technology programming. Um, I got I got to play for you at some point. This CBS this morning uh, woman who uh, did the screed against passwords and said passwords. <laughs> she literally said passwords are security theater. Oh goodness! And uh, and gave us the worst way of making up passwords I ever heard of. And this is on CBS this morning. So. Uh, no, no. I think people who listen to this show are uh, pretty serious. Pretty They're serious. ready. They're ready. They're I don't ready. think you should ever feel like you can have. You have to hold. Don't hold back. You know, I never. We, we never dumb it down. No, it's you know the serious stuff. And as you said, it it does it does uh, keep our listeners engaged. Our listeners so. are well above average. Yeah. They are. They're great, as I can tell from mm -hmm. the questions mm -hmm. that they submit. We're going to go through actually 11 because some will be quickies and there's a, uh, there's a, a combo one, I think, between four and five. They basically ask the same question. First one was rather elaborate and the second guy summarized it much more succinctly. I thought, oh, well, these both have to be 
Two different approaches. Did you game. see the Mother Jones article today about Edward Snowden? Now, this goes back a little ways, too, because uh, we talked quite a bit about your theories about prison, which in every respect, the more we learn, the more accurate uh, I think your theories have been. Actually, there was a there was a phrase in a in a piece in uh, on CNET, um, Declan McCullough, who he's been doing a great job. Yeah, yes, who we quoted often. There's actually a paragraph here where he said, "Documents leaked by former NSA co- contractor Edward Snowden confirmed that the NSA taps into fiber yeah. optic cables upstream, upstream from they internet, call it. Yep. from internet companies." And vacuums up email and other data that flows past. They have a name for it. They call it upstreaming. Upstreaming. <laughs> so there. anyway, so the, actually, this is the first time I have seen what I've uh, proposed as what was going on written somewhere. So yeah. and uh, I, I wasn't aware of any additional documents which further confirmed. Oh it. no, they, maybe they released two new slides on Sunday at the Washington oh, Post, okay. and ah. uh, and they they had the upstreaming information. Ah, okay. So the more we well, know, the more the accurate you are. And then the other thing that's an interesting question is. How come Snowden knows all this? And uh, there, uh, I think Kevin Drum, who's writing in Mother Jones, nailed it. He thinks uh, that the evidence and, and even the verbiage that's used about him shows that he was a, a hacker f- uh, for the, the CIA and the NSA. That his job was to build a target list of vulnerabilities for cyber warfare. And, you know, I think that that's... Sounds about right. Stuart Staniford wrote, I speculate this is going to turn out that Snowden was an electronic intruder on government payroll. His job was, last job was working as an NSA network threat detection center, suggesting knowledge of computer security. He previously worked for the CIA, including overseas, suggesting a cyber offense role. So I guess I just wonder, that seems like kind of more of a big deal than we have been led to believe but he was also stationed in Hawaii, which sort of seems like, well, okay, why was he out there and not like in, at the mothership? Pacific Intercepts? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I truly think that he probably – that they're downplaying his role. Uh, the, the federal government wants to downplay his role. It's in their interest. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Anyway. I do, I do think that the guy – I mean I, I watched that first introductory video – of him several times and he's clearly no dummy yeah, i mean yeah. man, many of the talking heads and the politicians have have gone out of their way to paint him as a you know a high school dropout and it's mm-hmm. like well mm. folks you know jobs wozniak and gates all dropped out of college <laughs> the best hackers so, are that's right yeah okay yeah, yeah that's not a yeah. no strike against him so uh we uh, so let's we get into news. it we're get, we got yeah. questions but let's get into the news yeah, yeah. so um uh, actually, it's, the, it's this article I wanted to share with our listeners about the first first half of it. Uh, Declan's article that I quoted from has the headline that it actually leads into next week's topic nicely. And many people have picked up on variations of this. And his, his, the title of his piece was Facebook's Outmoded Web Crypto Opens Door to NSA Spying. Um, and then the subtitle was It's Relatively Easy for the National Security Agency spooks to break outdated web encryption after vacuuming up data from fiber taps, cryptographers say. But Facebook is still using it. Well, okay, now it's absolutely unfair to 
point at Facebook because most people are still using it. So first of all, that's the first, I guess Facebook being Facebook is, you know, a target. Maybe it makes for a better headline. But the fact is very few people have yet moved their public key length up to 2048. Most, I think, are probably still back at 1024. And and that's essentially the, the, the substance of this. But there's some interesting details here. He says, secret documents describing the National Security Agency's surveillance apparatus have highlighted vulnerabilities in outdated web encryption. Now, okay, it is certainly noteworthy, though, that the documents that Snowden released are highlighting these, meaning that <laughs> this is certainly not falling on deaf ears, you know, back in Virginia. So said, highlighting vulnerabilities in outdated web encryption used by Facebook and a handful of other U.S. companies. Okay, it's a very large handful, as I said. Uh, and then there's a paragraph that says that I mentioned before, documents leaked by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden confirmed that the NSA taps into fiber optic cables upstream from Internet companies and vacuums up email and other data that flows past a security vulnerability that HTTPS web encryption is intended to guard against. But Facebook, and he says a few other companies, but I don't think that's accurate, still rely on an encryption technique viewed as many years out of date, which cryptographers say, well, for example, all of Google's certificates are 1024. And they've got more than anybody oh, else. Well, uh, Few other companies still rely on an encryption technique viewed as many years out of date, which cryptographers say the NSA could penetrate reasonably quickly after intercepting the communications. And this will be the topic of next week. We're going to delve into the back into the security setup protocol of SSL TLS in order to look at this question of what can you get knowing what from captured communications and how does the so-called perfect forward secrecy help to prevent that? So it says Facebook uses encryption keys with a length of only 1024 bits, while web companies including Apple, Microsoft, Twitter, Dropbox, and even MySpace have switched to exponentially more secure 2048-bit keys. And so, okay, there's a handful who have that's, that they'd only done so recently because that is only recently. Essentially, this is another side effect benefit of the fact that certificates are expiring constantly. Remember that they only have a two, one, two or three year life. EV certificates only a maximum of two years. So, you know, I've grumbled about that in the past saying, well, it's a pain on the butt and it's and it's expensive because you basically you're just continually shelling out cash to the people who are signing your certificate to to say yes we we've proven yet again that you are still you the flip side is that this deliberate expiring of the certificates does allow for this kind of rolling upgrade that is if at a certain time processing power has increased to the point where a 2048-bit certificate is no longer considered burdensome to use in establishing a connection, well, then let's get that. I mean, you could still ask for 1024. In some cases, it's believed to help with compatibility, but everyone now is using 2048. And for example, G 
GRC is. That's uh, I was at 1024 until just the holidays when I re- replaced all the servers and updated everything. So, you know, this is really just sort of happening. We're in the cusp where we're beginning to switch over. Aaron, and continuing from the article, Aaron Tromer, an assistant professor of computer science at Tel Aviv University who wrote his 2007 dissertation on custom code-breaking hardware, said it's now, quote, feasible to build dedicated hardware devices that can break 1024-bit RSA keys at a cost of a million dollars per device. Each such dedicated device would be able to break a 1024-bit key in one year, he said. <laughs> okay, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Now, now this is something that scales, though. Right. So, so for $100 million, dollars, you could do it in three yeah, days. Well, exactly. They're exactly. Perfect. So uh, realistically, right in the qu- quoting still, realistically, right now, breaking 1024-bit RSA should be considered well within reach by leading nations and marginally safe against other players, Tromer said. Quote, this is unsatisfactory as the default security level of the Internet. And that's really true. It is time to give up 1024-bit keys, especially (laughs) given the fact that we recognize security as a function of how much you want to break it. And unfortunately, we've there's no, very little doubt anymore about how, what the interest well, is in breaking security. One would one could presume that this Utah data center would have one half billion dollar custom ASIC facility that would crack this stuff in less than a day. This right? next line on the, the yes, the next line in the article is the NSA's budget is estimated to be at least ten billion yeah. a year. So you know they'll they'll have to build, put up their walls and put up their power plant and and buy their five zettabytes of storage. But then they're going to say, okay, wait a minute, let's start building cracking boxes. Yeah, we, and we, we have one to of assume these. it's on yeah, the list. We have to and in fact, I tweeted maybe three weeks ago. I, I I made a tweet that was sort of prescient in in this regard. It said something like, capture everything. Uh, brute force right. decrypt selectively. Yeah, and, and and presume that in time, you'll get the capability to, to you know break other stuff. Yes. And that's yes. why they're saving the PGP Tor and all of that stuff because they figure, well, they're, we can't crack it now. Now, if you exactly. go to twenty forty eight, that's more than doubling the amount of time. That's oh, like exponential, oh, right? It's it's exponentially yeah. more difficult. Yeah. Yes, it's like okay, now we're in a whole new ball game. Face, uh, continuing, Facebook declined to comment on this article. And I don't, well, I mean, what could they say? Okay, well, we're not alone. That's what I would have said, but maybe just uh, no comments better. A person familiar with the company's encryption development plans, however, said the social network is working on switching over yeah. to 2048-bit relatively soon. Encryption that's used to shield the privacy of web browsing is known as RSA a form of public key cryptography based on the fact that it's immensely difficult to factor large numbers. As microprocessor speeds continue to advance, however, RSA keys with links that were previously viewed as secure have fallen to brute force attacks. Um, and that's really the meat of this article. It goes on to talk about pri- you know, previous cracking and, and lengths and, and so forth. But so essentially... Uh, I guess I would I would walk back the screaming headline a little bit and say that all not just Facebook but Google 
and many other companies who are using 2048, sorry, 10, still using 1024-bit keys only because two years ago or three years ago that seemed fine. Well, I imagine everybody will be moving now as their keys expire. And in fact, I did see, uh, I think it was Adam Langley quoted here. He's a neat guy. He and I corresponded. I mean, he's literally maintaining the source code of the security side of, of Chrome. And it was with, with Adam that I exchanged email um, when I wanted GRC to be built into Chrome's uh, SSL only list so that Chrome will refuse a non-SSL connection to GRC. Um, I think it was here. Um, oh, yeah, here. Uh, uh, Langley, the Google software engineer, said his employer could devote some of its massive computing... Oh, this is not what I wanted to read. Uh, could devote some of its massive computing resources to breaking a 1024-bit RSA key if it chose to do so. Okay, well, thanks for that. Uh, he says it could be done today. We could do it if we really wanted. But he adds there are better ways to spend millions of dollars in a way that will, quote, advance the state of the art of cryptography research. And actually, we'll be talking a little bit about that later. I'm sure in this article, Langley was quoted as saying of Google that, oh, yeah, here it is. He said, uh, says, oh, here, Google also uses 10, 1024-bit keys. But in 2011, it implemented a clever trick called forward secrecy, meaning a different key is used for each encrypted web session instead of a single master key that's used to encrypt billions of them. Okay, and that's not quite true because it requires cooperation. So we'll be, we'll be talking about that. The company said last month, it will switch over to 2048-bit keys by the end of this year. And we've already spoken previously about Google's early warning of their intention to do so. And that in that move of going to 2048-bit keys, remember that they said, do not use certificate pinning, as it's called, where you're locking on to specific certificate serial numbers, those are going to break. Do not assume we're going to be using the same hierarchy of signing. Do not assume we're going to be using the same certificate authority as our root and on and on and on. I mean, basically, anyone who's not been playing by the rules to take shortcuts, get prepared to be unhappy because we're going to, we're going to change everything. So we know that that's happening. And now, says Adam, we would have preferred to move sooner but operating at the scale we do, client compatibility is always an issue. Everything on the planet seems to connect to us. Langley added, we would have totally eaten the cost and the speed years ago if we could have done it without worries. As an additional precaution, Langley said, Google usually rotates its RSA keys every two weeks. And it says in parens here, Facebook does it once a year and is also planning to make forward secrecy a default for users, which few other companies do. Once Facebook switches to 2048-bit keys and forward secrecy, its users will be better protected against NSA surveillance than almost any other company. And that's, of course, only true until everybody else catches up. So interesting little piece, and I, I thought that needed some clarification, and it will uh, gives us a little built-in tease for next week's uh, techie topic. Good. Good, good. There was another one I thought was interesting. Dan Gooden, who we've also 
often covered, writing for Ars Technica. Uh, the headline was, How the U.S. in parens probably spied on European allies' encrypted faxes. A bunch of our listeners picked up on this oh, and made boy. sure I was aware of it. And the subtitle here was, Grainy, images, grainy Image Stoked Speculation of Old School Tempest-Style Attack. And since this feeds into the concept of side channel attacks, and we've talked about this sort of Tempest stuff before, I thought this was, was fun. Uh, from the article, Dan writes, U.S. intelligence services implanted bugging tools into cryptographic facsimile devices to... Oh, and by the way, the EU is <laughs> really unhappy about this news. Yeah. Into cryptographic facsimile devices to intercept secret communications sent or re received by the European Union's Washington, D.C. outpost, according to the latest leak from former National Security Agency staffer Edward Snowden. Technical details are scarce, but security experts reading between the lines say the program probably relies on an old-school style of espionage that parses electric currents, acoustic vibrations, and other subtle types of energy to reveal the contents of encrypted communications. Remember, we've, we've spoken of many things like this once. We, there, there was some question of the lights blinking on router switches, where, you know, someone claiming you could read the traffic off of the blinking light. Uh, there have been experiments about, like, recognizing what people were typing just by listening to the sound of the keystrokes on the keyboard because there's something, mm -hmm. you know, keys are individually distinctive. And so... Once you, if you like recorded enough of a single keyboard being typed on, then ran that through frequency analysis of the language in which it was being typed, you could discern which was the E, the T, the S, and so forth, and then begin to figure out what they were doing. So it's all, you know, very fuzzy, but arguably better than nothing. If you, again, if you are really determined and you have a lot of money and time uh, to figure this out. Anyway, continuing, the bugging method was codenamed Dropmire, and it, rely, it appears to rely on a device being, quote, implanted on the cryptofax at the EU embassy in D.C., unquote, according to a 2007 document partially published Sunday by The Guardian. An image... Included in the document, presumably taken from a transmission traveling over a targeted device, shows highly distorted text that can just barely be read by the human eye as the letters EC followed by NCN. The fax device was used to send cables between foreign affairs ministries and European capitals, according to Sunday's report. And then later down the article... Uh, this is this is the line that I loved. Marcus um, Kuhn, uh, K-U-H-N, a computer scientist and senior lecturer at Cambridge University, wrote in a blog post published Monday, so two days ago, quote, having done many experiments to eavesdrop on office equipment myself, the noisy image at the bottom third of the sample picture 
looked instantly familiar. Oh, I just oh. get goosebumps when I read that. It's like, oh, oh, I mean, that's exactly what you would think. You know, an independent academician has done this too. And when he looks at the, what that is supposed to be in the lower portion, he says, yep, that's exactly what you would get from this technology. And, and continuing Marcus's quote, it says, it is what you might get from listening with a radio receiver on the compromising emanations of a video signal from a page of text. Three security experts ours spoke with agreed with Marcus's analysis. They said it makes a strong case that the attacks targeting the EU encrypted fax devices were relying on what's known as side-channel attacks, which target weaknesses in a specific cryptographic implementation rather than the underlying cipher or mathematics it's built upon. So this is another, it's a classic instance of the cryptography is not the weakness, the system is the weakness. And since the system involves at some point pre-encrypted plain text, if, if it emits radiation or sound or, or light that, that in some way represents what you're sending prior to, you know, like when it's being digitized, when it's being scanned, then, and if you can capture that and, you know, there's going to be noise, there's going to be background noise, you know, all kinds of interference. But if you can find the signal in the noise, that is, if the signal-to-noise ratio is such that you can, you can extract it. And again, you know, we're very good at doing that. You know, we solve captures, God help us, that computers can't because we're good signal-to-noise discriminators. So anyway, really interesting uh, piece, I thought. Uh, just in other little quick news, uh, Ubisoft has lost their password database. Uh, I would imagine I, I got a lot of tweets from people saying, "Hey, just got a letter from them." Now we should. Uh, I'm going to say this real quickly. This is not YubiKey. This is a game company called Ubisoft. Good, because it's an audio yes. podcast. People might, and we talk a lot Thank about you. YubiKey. That's not right. the this YUBI. Is, this is UbiSoft, right. and it's a, yes. it's a game Good. company. Thank you, Leo. Yeah, yeah, because they. They, 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 Stina they posted, would be mad if we... <laughs> yes, they, they posted, hello all, and we don't want Stina to be mm -hmm. mad. Now she lives nearby. Yeah. Hello all, we recently found, this is Ubisoft, we recently found that one of our websites has exp was exploited to gain unauthorized access to some of our online systems. We instantly took steps to close off this access to begin a thorough investigation with relative authorities, internal and external security experts, and to start restoring the integrity of any compromised systems. During this process, we learned that data were illegally accessed from our account database, including usernames, email addresses, and encrypted passwords. No personal payment information is stored with Ubisoft meaning your debit slash credit card information was safe from this intrusion. As a result, we are recommending you to change your password. And then in the blog posting, click here to change your password. Out of an abundance of caution, we, recommended, we recommend that you change your password on any other website or service where you use the same or a similar password. And I would argue that that's now become 
you know, de rigueur. It's standard operating procedure. Uh, first of all, not to use the same password across multiple sites, but certainly if you learn that on one site there's been a problem, then the, the argument is you really need to change it everywhere and take that opportunity to use a different password on, on different sites. Um, there was a slide that I was that was actually tweeted to me. And Leo, if you might want to bring that, click that link and sure. bring up the image since it's interesting. Sure. I asserted back when I was talking about my theory for PRISM that the problem was, you know, the, the argument, for example, about why would tapping Google help because all Google Gmail browser access is going to be over SSL. Well, unfortunately, now we know that it's over 1024-bit SSL through the end of the year. Um, but, but my point was that, that SMTP itself, the protocol, is almost never encrypted. Well, it turns out that people have been looking into that since. And of the four major web-based mail providers, Google, Hotmail, Yahoo and AOL, only Google does offers SMTP server-to-server -server encryption. So that makes my case. Essentially, if email goes anywhere, that is to any, since encryption has to be supported at each end, then Google to Hotmail, Google to Yahoo, Google to AOL, and any other combination of that will always be decrypted. But, but Gmail to Gmail would be safe. Well, yes. And we, there's an interesting question about General Petraeus's strategy. Uh, in, in community. <laughs> he blew it. <laughs> if he just stayed within Gmail, he'd still be the chairman uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or whatever the hell yeah, it was. So, yeah, so Google to Google, if we assume that they transit on the public Internet over SMTP between data centers. I mean, we know very little about right. Google's internal infrastructure, but 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 essentially, only if it was Google to some other server also supporting secure SMTP would they negotiate security after establishing a connection. But for example, no Hotmail, no Yahoo, no AOL email would would ever. Uh, meet, meet that level and um, neither sending nor receiving to or from a Gmail user. So today, unfortunately, there's still lots you can get from tapping a fiber optic link, even though a lot of traffic is encrypted. Once it emerges, it will be decrypted for you. So the good news uh, is people, more and more people using Gmail. Yes. Yes. Right. So, Gmail to Gmail is probably going to be I'm sure that stays within the Google verse. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Um, and a couple, of, just as a further sort of a random follow up to my my talking about Prism a couple of weeks ago, um, a number of people said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, Facebook. You're always staying in Facebook. So when you go to Facebook, assume you know. I mean, Facebook brought up security. Assuming that you're browsing in Facebook and posting in Facebook, then all of the data is secure. Well, except anything coming out of Facebook, you know, mail-wise is not, or going in is not. Um, but more importantly, and this is significant, I believe the slide that we saw with that weird-looking timeline, kind of a green arrow with yellow 
ovals on top of it. But I remember making a note in my mind was that Facebook was added in 07. Well, the point was Facebook, as we know, only very recently, it was in it was last year in 2012, got serious about HTTP security. They were only being secure during logon, thus the reason that FireSheep was such a problem for them because, you know, their their insecure token was being sent back and forth. And you, we were immediately seeing all these Facebook users pop up at, you know, if you fired up FireSheep at, at Starbucks, that's what you saw was Facebook profiles. So, so this is a, an interesting point because, you know, we've, the FBI has referred to often the going dark problem, as they call it. So what we have is a situation exactly like that, where a substantial amount of time and effort and money and trouble was invested in 07 in, in if we're right about what PRISM is, in tapping Facebook and as establishing fiber optic taps into the Facebook data centers. And back then, it was a treasure trove because all of the pages, except for login, were in the clear. Well, the NSA could not have been happy when Facebook did what was a benefit for its users last year, which was to get serious about SSL and begin, first offer the option and then switch it to default, which, of course, is where we are now. So it is unarguably the case that that tap that was good for five years has largely gone encrypted, which doesn't mean they're not still sucking stuff in, but it's it's not as easy as it was before. So this is my point being this is a moving target. Um, and, you know, they got five years of data. Uh, maybe it. It did them some good before Facebook said, oh, I think maybe we should be encrypting. I have to think that anybody who's doing seriously bad things at this point is not trusting Facebook to communicate with their, with their cells in the United States. Yes. Uh, yes. Although, seriously, from a, come on. From a metadata standpoint, all of this adds up for like networking. You, For example, you might have, this, you might have a network of bad guys talking about their favorite sandwich meat right. on, on Facebook – and then doing all of the being sneaky when they talk about anything, you know, that involves bad stuff. But 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 their, but their network has still been established using metadata to to link them together when they had their guard down. So it's still useful. They never had their guard down. All you have good to do guy. is look I mean, at good, Zero Dark Thirty. Osama bin Laden was living in a compound where there was no Internet access at all. Right. Which he knew? Was, Yep. Why do you think they live in caves in Tora Bora? They know internet access is a bad idea. They ain't using Facebook. To t- <laughs> just, I firmly believe the government doesn't do this to capture terrorists. They do it because it's a great way to get, you know, even. Leo, they do it because they can. They can. Yeah. Useful. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not convinced it's of any uh, help in fighting the real bad guys. Well, and the argument that uh, Udall has been making is that the... For years, they in the cell in the oversight committees, they were pressing the intelligence services to demonstrate that they succeeded with the program, and they were unable no, to. No, of course not. So, they do it because no, so they you, can. You're exactly so, right. So, yeah. So you hear these, you know, on the Sunday shows. Oh, it's foiled 
countless plots. Well, wait a minute. Oh, and I love it too. And they say, oh, but the number is classified. We can't tell you. What do you mean? Why can't you not tell us what number? <laughs> but it's a large, numbers? large. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read. A, I just read an article, a blog post by a law professor who uh, estimates that we break three federal laws. Everybody breaks three federal laws a day because the federal laws are so wide, broadly written and stupidly written, particularly in electronic uh, communications and so oh, forth, God. that we, uh, everybody, and so they're collecting all this, and if, if if they ever should, heaven forfend, decide they don't like somebody, they got plenty of ways to, to go after them. Well, I just, when I, when I heard the, the intelligence guy said, well, you know, a great many plots have been foiled, but we, but the number is classified. It's like, what? No. A number is classified? What, 34? 27? 42? No. How can a number be no. classified? Anyway, Because the number that. zero is why. Well, and the point is, because we don't have to tell you. We will right. not tell you anything right. we don't have to tell you. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, fine. Now, okay, I don't get this. This seems like the strangest thing ever. So we'll, we'll try to figure out. I've got two topics under the category of browser watch. The first is Firefox version 23, which, by the way, is the next biggie, slated for next month, August. This is the one I've been waiting for because, <laughs> what's the phrase? God willing and the creek don't rise, I think. Uh, uh, they're going to be, Firefox will be disabling third-party cookies by default. But something else happened in the version 23 development channel, which really sparked off a firestorm. They have removed the checkbox to disable JavaScript and they re-enable JavaScript if it was previously disabled. That's cold. <laughs> that is cold. Wow. So they so updating to version 23, the next one, because I just got 22 when I restarted the browser silently enables previously disabled JavaScript. No warnings, no pop-ups, no notices at all, and removes the ability to disable it from the UI. So this caused a big ruckus. Um, and I mean, it's like, what? 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 Um, and uh, as, as you can imagine. So the argument seems to be that that sophisticated users are sophisticated. So they will know what to do. Then the counter-argument, of course, is, wait a minute, but if they turned it off, they would expect it to still be off. It's been silently re-enabled. Then, then, the, then the, the response to that is, well, about colon config, and then, you know, you, you, drow, you dredge around in about 20,000 configuration settings you use the search because you have no other choice um and somewhere you will find javascript colon enable and you change that from a one to a zero but of course that's not user-friendly because it's not in the ui so then the argument comes back well there are much better tools available in other words no script and no script is referred to by name in this back and forth in in the in in the text of this discussion so if people want to turn JavaScript on and off, that's what they should use. So I, I, I quoted two paragraphs here, quote, the, from this discussion, the ability to share your experience, including turning off JS, is offered in many different ways. I'm sorry, the ability to shape 
I think I said share. The ability to shape your experience, including turning off JavaScript, is offered in many different ways. Not everything needs to be in the primary browser UI. We did not actually remove a choice, just reduced the visibility to like to, to nothing of that particular choice. What does not that does not go against either of these principles in the manifesto. And then they said, again, quote a little bit lower, note that if we removed the preference from the UI but left JavaScript disabled, this would make life really hard for non-expert users, and I'll add parenthetically who were expert enough to turn it off, apparently, that accidentally cha accidentally yeah, changed this. That, you know, if you were told turn off Java and you hit JavaScript and then the web broke, I can yeah. see that's a, not an unusual circumstance. Well, Some but, of this but, may be just to avoid tech support calls, you know. Actually, that's exactly, there was an argument in there yeah. that the IT people will be happy because they get tech support calls when people turn off JavaScript and then things break right, right. And, and don't work. Right. So anyway, for what it's I worth. I think that's not unreasonable. Like, you know, we're smart enough to know, oh, it's tur turned on or use no script. And it is the case that, uh, that, uh, that t well, okay, first of all, you're not using IE. So you right. made your first big step, <laughs> right? Towards but again, a lot of people do this stuff because they hear people tell them, "Oh, you got to use Firefox, and don't forget to disable Java." And then they disable JavaScript. The web is broken. Good point. I think Good that point. that's not. I mean, and you can't. You have to argue. I mean, you, you, the, the, your argument is sound, and that is that there is a big ambiguity between Java and JavaScript. Right. right. So much so that people thought one is a scripting version of the right, other, which right. we've disabused everyone of. Is Java turned off by default? Um, versioning is definitely verified now. I don't remember whether it's off by default. Yeah. And, so, um, and, and, that, and Web 8013 makes a very good point. You shouldn't just turn something back on, you know, know. by default. Because that's, that's not appropriate either. I know. Give them an, a pop-up and say, hi, we noticed yeah. that, you know, in moving from 22 to 23, right. we're removing this from here. We're, we moved it over there. And by the way, how do you want your new default to be? Right. That would be, and, that would be fine. Yes, no one would argue with that. Although, again, but, confusing for grandma uh, yeah. or grandpa, and that's the problem. Good point. And now they're doing silent updating, so it's like, wait, whoa, 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 huh? what do you mean updated my browser? Huh? Huh? But yeah. to silently turn back JavaScript, turn JavaScript back on if someone had turned it off, it does I seem think like. that's wrong. That yeah. doesn't seem right, yeah. yeah. Hey, I just and wanted I to mention upset. somebody in the chat room said that uh, Doug Engelbart has passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. If 88 years old. Uh, oh, well, good. He, he, the, he had a good run. In, it, a great run. Uh, inventor of the uh, computer mouse yep. uh, while he was at SRI. Uh, I remember yep. interviewing him uh, on the screensavers 10 years ago and uh, just uh, just a legend. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, just thought I'd mention that. Um, second browser update is, okay, I don't think this is going to turn out well, but it'll be interesting to see. Gro Chrome is experimenting with a new protocol that Google has put together called QUIC. We are to pronounce it's an acronym which we are to pronounce quick, of course. Stands for Quick UDP Internet Connections. 
quick UDP internet connections. And I'll just read briefly from Wikipedia since there's already an entry there. And I have not gone into it for a deep dive, although I expect I will because that's what we do here. Quick supports a set of multiplexed connections between connections. Remember, that's an important word because UDP is a connectionless protocol. TCP is a connection-oriented protocol. So what essentially they're doing is TCP over UDP, which is, you know, and therein lies a story. Quick supports a set of multiplexed connections between two endpoints over user datagram protocol, UDP, and was designed to provide security protection equivalent to TLS SSL along with reduced connection and transport latency and bandwidth estimation in each direction to avoid congestion. The protocol handles packet loss well. Besides packet level forward error correction, Quick aligns cryptographic block boundaries with packet boundaries. So the impact of packet loss is even lower. I mean, these are all really exciting things. Quick also allows higher-level application protocols, such as Speedy, to reduce or compress redundant data transmissions, such as headers. One of the motivations for developing Quick was that in TCP, the delay of a single packet induces head-of-line blocking for the entire set of Speedy streams. Quick better quicks better multiplexing support means that only one stream would pause as improved tcp is a lo- as improving tcp is a long term goal for google quick aims to be nearly equivalent to an independent tcp connection but with much reduced latency goal is zero round trip time connectivity overhead and better speedy support. If quick features prove effective, they could migrate into a later version of TCP and TLS. So, okay, so my misgivings are that that UDP connections are so different from TCP connections. Uh, They're different with proxies, which won't pass UDP, but do pass TCP. They're different with firewalls. Same goes. Um, you know, they're, they're just, it's, it's very different. Also, t- there is so much technology which has been built into TCP over time, incrementally and carefully. Now, it's all open, public domain, open source. So, so the guys who are wanting to do, implement the the critical aspects, you know, retransmission and and queuing and and rate management and and buffer. We talked extensively about you know buffer bloat and so forth. You know they they can take all the lessons learned, and it is the case that you know the problem with TCP is remember that it guarantees in order delivery. The exact sequence in which you put things into your end is guaranteed to come out the other end. Well, that means that if a packet gets lost along the way, then the the other packets that are in that have already been sent in in you know in send ahead, 
they will they will start being saved at the receiving end and when the receiving end doesn't acknowledge the la- the, la- the the packet that was lost the transmitter the transmitting end which has been saving up these packets it's sending until it gets the acknowledgement it will resend the lost one well so that does stall the entire flow and if you've got multiplexed connections over a single connection, TCP connection, they all get stalled. And also, the idea of aligning encryption boundaries with packet boundaries is brilliant because because you cannot do that in TCP because there's no notion of packets in TCP. In TCP, the application simply sends a stream out. There's there's no packet-level awareness, but that's not... The way UDP operates, the application itself generates and sends individual UDP packets. So it can explicitly align the the encryption boundaries with the packet boundaries. So anyway, really interesting. Um, and and I I guess I I wonder a little bit about what the gain will be because remember that modern TCP there is some overhead. You know the the whole the triple handshake round trip and then some it it starts slow and it ramps its speed up in order not to immediately over congest the connection so it sort of it feels its way forward um all of that happens per connection and a browser will normally look like an octopus sending connections out all over the place if it's populating its page with ads, for example, from far and wide. And boy, when I look at what no script, sometimes I'll go to a site, it's like, okay, I need to enable scripting here. And I look at the amazing list of sites that are that are like are being blocked. It's, it's often like 25 or 30 different places that have, you know, they're all wanting to get their scripting into this page. I just think, oh, okay, uh, I'm, it's nice of nothing else to know. Um, so, Anyway, I, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. We, you know, Google will always err on the side of caution. So it may be that they will, you know, their servers will support quick, Chrome will support quick, but fall back to TCP. Obviously, if if it can't establish a quick connection, and then they'll see, they'll do big, you know, studies and statistical analysis and and figure out, you know, where their problems and and where it's working and. And, you know, they'll move forward if they can. So, you know, certainly from a techie standpoint, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. And if, it, if more comes of it, we will certainly uh, understand it all on this podcast. A little bit of errata, one piece. Last week when I was, everyone's propellers were wound up, I was talking about sector sizes and said that the sector count was five bits. Well, I, of course I know better than that. It's six um, somebody said, ah, Steve, you got your math wrong. It's like, oh, duh, of course. Five bits is 32. Six bits is 64. So just to correct the record. Yes, of course. Now, Leo. Yes. I am 64% of the way through Stephen King's Under the Dome novel. <laughs> and you know that because you read it on a Kindle. I know that because... I look down. Yes, I read it on a Kindle. I actually read. I'm not having it read to me. I am reading it myself. Wow, how ambitious. And, and boy, it's funny. My, my favorite quote was, hard as this novel is to put down, it's even more difficult to lift up. 
<laughs> not on a Kindle, of course, no, but I guess yeah. in the in the in the pulp I can in only the imagine. wood pulp yeah. version, this thing I guess is monstrous. Um, I am really loving it, and I have to say, I I tweeted. I guess it was yesterday or the day before. I I went read through a really chilling part, and. And and Stephen King has a message here. I strongly doubt it's going to come through in the TV version. First of all, the TV edition, as always is the case, is so inferior to the novel. I mean, I, people are doing ridiculous things on TV. Uh, I mean, and there are. It's sort of fun to see the characters that have been chosen for the characters in the novel. Essentially, the only thing that is carrying over from the Stephen King's novel is the concept of being under a dome. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, and this the roles of some of the characters very roughly, the names, I mean, but it's it's radically different. So that I mean, actually I'm going to stop watching the TV series yes. because it's too confusing for for me to say, "Wait a minute, Rose didn't do that." Oh, that's right. That right, was in the right. novel and not in the TV. So I'm going to actually I think I'll be finished with the book by the time we speak next week because I'm I hadn't started it when we spoke last week. Um but my the, the only little takeaway then and the thing that prompted my tweet was the observation that people give up freedom in time of fear yeah and we gave up freedom after 911 yep um because fear was stoked and you know present also but stoked and those who had a reason to want more power obtained it during the window and you know i mean rahm emanuel was quoted famously of saying never let an emerge a good emergency go to waste or something to that effect i mean you know <laughs> use these things and that's what politicians do and so i feel very much like stephen king has has he's, he's created a microcosm with authority outside authority cut off and then he watches what happens inside and it is really interesting i mean i'm loving the book i can't put it down um so uh i don't know for people who are interested there you know people i saw a criticism i don't know if it was of the book or the movie that people were not acting in a reasonable way well it's absolutely true in last monday's episode one of the sheriffs just went off the deep end it's like what i mean he was it was ridiculous and and then well I can't say it anymore without spoiling but anyway so that that isn't in the book I'm very pleased with the behavior of the people in the book and in fact one of the things that Stephen King is known for is building really understandable people and Leo this doesn't often happen I'm encountering words I don't know um, I ran across commodious yeah. And I and I thought, what? And it was, he was in the backyard, and she had a. I think it was. I think it was a commodious uh, kimono. A, a commo no, a commodious backyard. Yeah, and it's it means roomy and comfortable. Yes, and as is referred like as in furniture or like a commodious couch, right. uh, yeah. or, or or a building could be commodious. And then this morning was comestibles. Oh yeah, and That's as food, it's food. Yeah, and I thought, okay, wait a minute. Maybe Stephen is reading the year through the entire dictionary, <laughs> and he happened to be in, 
<laughs> he happened to be in the seas. This, I mean, commodious and comestible, and those are the two words I have never seen before. It's like, okay, wait a minute. He happened to be in the COM section of the dictionary he was reading <laughs> when he was writing this. He thought, oh, I'll just drop commodious in here and uh, comestible. This is, you, you had never read any Stephen King before. Is that right? No, I've, yeah. no I haven't. Yeah. I think you like, like his other stuff. Yeah, well, and he, he's advertising on on the show Dr. Sleep or something. It looks very creepy. Something yeah, about, you know, somebody's demons, you know, yeah. ha, he was. they were with him when he was young, and he grew up, and so did they. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so Simon Zarafa, our frequent contributor, offers, he's been throwing out all kinds of attempts at NSA humor, and one really landed well. Uh, so I thought I would share that one. He said, so, the same NSA guy, our, our, our NSA guy who has his favorite bar, he walks into his bar and, and orders a beer. He says, I want a beer. The bartender asks, domestic or imported? NSA guy says, what's the difference? So, I like that. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not as good as the first one. But still, I get it. <laughs> you should have seen the other ones. Anyway, uh, no. So... Kevin in New York, I'll share this briefly, uh, says, Spinrite fixes an old one gigabyte flash drive. And actually, there's a lesson here for our listeners that I wanted to share. He says, in testing how well Spinrite can work on flash memory, I tried it on an old one gigabyte Sony MicroVault flash drive. Basically, the issue was corrupting data, e.g., Placing any large file on the flash drive would cause the checksum to come back differently. It was no longer reliable. So, I decided to run Spinrite on the flash drive using level 4, since I didn't care if it killed the drive, since it is slow, and, I love this phrase, I just, I roll over in my, not yet, in my grave, and one gigabyte is no longer very useful. Okay, what land do we live in now where one gigabyte... It comes in a cereal box. That's right. ...no longer yeah. useful. Yeah. Anyway, so... And the point of level four, of course, is that it it inverts the data, reads it back, inverts it again, writes it and reads it back and to verify it, doing, a, like, essentially a full refresh. And that's controversial on non-spinning mass storage because non-spinning mass storage is known to have a a right cycle life. Anyway, so he says, anyway, running it on level four, completely fixed, in all caps, the checksum issue, though Spinrite reported no trouble. And I can now copy a large ISO, see, that's useful, file to the flash <laughs> drive. For a CD, no, not a DVD. For but, a CD, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. with no problem. I still do not trust the flash drive for anything important, that's wise, but it was interesting to try it and see what it would do with the flash drive. Now, I, I wanted to walk back a little bit the prohibition about Spinrite on solid-state storage at anything more than level one or two. Because, okay, it's just two writes. It writes it upside down, then it writes it back right side up. So, you know... It's like yes, you don't want to do it continuously. You don't want to. You don't want to put your swap file on a flash drive, no. you know, yeah. where the light's constantly blinking on your hard drive. But you know, if if you want to like 
do a better job of cleaning up a drive which is a little dodgy and or maybe if one or level one or two doesn't fix the problem it's not like level four is going to just fry it I and mean, maybe just because spin has got superpowers or something it's just all it's doing is writing it all upside down then right side up you know all the ones become zeros and zeros ones and then vice versa to put it all back and that's what this drive needed so that was cool um i just thought i would give a little uh, weekly update on the progress on the next version of Spinrite. Since sales has not been killed, I really thank our listeners for that, um, especially because everybody who is buying it will all get 6.1 for free. Um, the last podcast was, of course, about the weird anomalies in the Intel architecture that allowed large access, 32-bit access in real mode, which is normally limited to 16 bits, um, that's all implemented. It's all working now. Um, I now have a completely mature uh, built-in memory manager, extended memory manager in Spinrite, which is able to go out and explore all of high memory. It maps out all of the regions because there's various weird little chunks that are taken out with the goal of finding for itself 32 megabytes to establish a maximum size transfer buffer because all of our new drives are able to transfer uh, 64K sectors in a single burst. So Spinrite will be able to do that also. It, it's also compatible with external memory managers. If you've already got an, an extended memory manager, it'll see that and use that instead. Um, and next on the list, and this is all just finished yesterday. We got everything wrapped up and tested. Next is... Um, it's, it's also completely enumerating the PCI bus, finding all of the disk controllers of every type that there are. However, there are three types, and it will only be able to work with this in super high performance mode with one of the three. Uh, that is the so-called native PCI mode. You could have your controllers in compatible IDE mode, which doesn't give access to all of the upper memory regions, or in AHCI mode, which is the advanced host controller interface. That's the next generation super advanced one. The good news is, from what we've seen so far, with like one exception in a hundred people and like m many hundreds of systems this has been run on now, Spinrite, I'm expecting, will be able to change the controller into the mode it wants. All of, like for a long time, the, any of the advanced ones have always been able to be set back to this native PCI mode. So that's the next round of work we'll be doing, and I'll, I'll have an update on that next week. How exciting. Yeah. So, oh, and there, there have been some people who, have been, who are really anxious for the Mac version and have been asking, like, for a pre-release version that runs on their Mac. Um, I'm the, where I'm really going is to support UEFI booting, which would allow USB sticks, USB drives to boot by holding down the option key at boot time. That's a, still a ways away. But the much easier solution is the way people have been using Spinrite with limited success because of the keyboard problem. And that's on a CD. You can hold the C key down, and meaning C for CD, and that'll it'll and the system will boot in a PC compatible mode from the CD, and that I think we'll have pretty soon. My goal is 
to get all of this new hardware-level data transfer large buffer stuff written and solid, I mean, absolutely solid. I certainly won't let anything out that would that would be a problem. And then I'm going to do, my plan is to do an, an interim release, not 6.1, but just a development level release, but which works and is way faster and compatible and all that. And at that point, it's already got the Mac keyboard stuff fixed. So you could burn it on, you could take the ISO and put it on a CD and run spinner on your Mac. So I think we'll have, as long as you've got a CD drive, that's my point is that, you know, like some of the Macs now, my Air, for example, I had to buy a, a, a the CD for it um, separately. So I know that, that um, older Macs, of course, do have CD drives, but some of the newer solid state drive Macs don't. Yeah. So not long, maybe, you know, a few weeks if uh, it all goes well. Hey, I just wanted to make a, a little bit of a note that Twitter has, this is something our audience would be very interested in, I'm sure, in a chat room reminded me. Twitter has announced that it's going to allow advertisers to target you if you are a Twitter user based on your activities off Twitter. Uh, Third-party browsing. Uh, they'll also use uh, email addresses to target the ads you see. You won't see more ads on Twitter, they say, but you may see better ones. Uh, fortunately, Twitter has uh, put in some opt-out boxes in your settings uh, so you can implement do not track. Uh, okay, so, so what this means is that they will, the advertisers will bring their knowledge of you from when you're not on Twitter to Twitter right? so that the ads you see you know, convey that knowledge. And that Twitter will be giving ad partners more information about you based on what uh, it knows. Uh, oh, goodness. So, uh, I mean, this is no different than what Facebook does at yes. this point. Uh, but yeah. it, it might be something people, you know, our audience, given I know their strong feelings about doing Yeah, I also saw, do you see that thing about Bing and Windows 8 yeah. or Windows Blue or whatever? Yeah, it's going to put ads it, in the search results. It's like, oh, yeah. my Goodness, you're going to yeah. monetize my Windows search results? Yeah, isn't that, well, the first step was putting Bing results in your search results, and I should that should have been a red flag. Yep. It's like, why would you do that? Oh, now I know why. This punishes the few people who actually do upgrade um, because most of us are just going to stay with 7, Leo. Yeah, I think that's a pretty clear message from a, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Hey, real briefly, before we get to the questions and answers, and we got a lot of them, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, but first a word from our friends at Man Packs, the place to go for manly goods on a schedule. Every three months I get my underwear, my socks, my T-shirts, man, other manly goods, shaving kit, uh, shampoo from Man Packs. Right now, if you want to try it out, you can do so and save $10. If you go to manpacks.com slash twit, you'll get 10 bucks off any order of $30 or more. And by the way, $30 orders include free shipping on anything over $30. Or you can get a $50 gift card. If you're not a man, but you have a man in your life, Get a th or even if you are a man and you have a man in your life, come to think of it, you can get a $50 gift card for only 40 bucks at manpacks.com slash twit. That's an exclusive twit offer. And uh, I can tell you I love man packs. I'm a big fan because I'm a manly man, and I like to get my underwear in the mail. I don't like to shop, you know. Shopping is for women. You know that Mark Thompson Children. was doing an experiment to see how long he could stay in the house? He has no, no fear of going out. 
No, but you got, don't need to go out anymore. They bring you everything. His, that was his point. Is he was yeah. like getting groceries from Amazon or something. You never like, need oh. to go out ever again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you might want to go out, <laughs> but you don't have to, I guess is the point. Are you ready for questions, Steve? Let's go. Let's go. 11 questions, thoughts, and comments. This is listener-driven potpourri number 171, starting with John Shattuck, Information Security in Washington State. John Queries, I just listened to the thing on PRISM. What makes you think the NSA hasn't required that Google pass along, and MSN and Yahoo for that matter, their 128-bit encryption keys? My guess is they've been given the keys under the ask of uh, national security the same way they've been given a, or they've taken a piece of real estate to build data centers in their buildings. Could they just say, hey, give us the SSL keys? I don't know that they could not. I'm, I mean, I think, yes. I mean, I think they unfortunately can compel a company to do anything, anything. they want. Yeah. And now it's not 128-bit encryption keys. Those are negotiated on the fly this we're going to get into this seriously next week this this difference between symmetric and asymmetric right. short keys and long keys and so forth it's complicated but you know that's you know we we explain that stuff here um but so they'd be 1024 keys they would be yes they would keys. In, uh, yes in the case of facebook and google famously they would be their their basically the private key which they never let out of their control which is the only way we have of authenticating them essentially you know their security certificate i don't know that that anything prevents our governments from saying it's a matter of national security are you not patriotic and here's a letter compelling you to give up your private key and by the way we'll need you to refresh this when you change your private key um i mean Sure, they have that information. Actually, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is the world in which we now live. I guess yeah. you know people have been saying, "Oh, Gibson, you know, you're naive. We've been living in this world for a long time." You know, what was it that Orwell wrote in 1984? It's like, yes, I know, but you know, we've got a timeline now. It's when and storage has gotten so cheap, as this great EFF guy we quoted last week said, it's now so cheap to store stuff that it makes sense to store everything. Steve, good. And, uh, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Sorry. Of course, we, we can just presume this is happening. Steve, good. Lexington, Kentucky wonders, do the numbers add up? Steve, thanks for the great inform information on NSA's PRISM program. I have a question. If the spooks are splitting and duplicating the data upstream bit for bit, how much data is that? I think we quoted a number from IBM, but I, I've forgotten. We could do the math. How many days or months can they it's store in their five zettabyte data farm? I know this would require an estimate of the amount of data coming out of Google and other servers are being tapped. Do the numbers add up? Can they actually store everything forever? Not forever, no. If they could store it all, what kind of system can search five zettabytes of data in a useful time frame? I'm guess, I guess I'm trying to understand. How much is a zettabyte? Um, th th a number of people have been confused by this, so I wanted to come back to it briefly. This system... As far as we know, the PRISM technology incorporates something that is so-called semantic analyzer. And this is this thing, this equipment produced by Norris, N-A-R-U-S. And we found the brochure for it that has on its second page a PRISM uh, as its graphics showing, like, what it does. 
And anecdotally, we've heard that that the much more expansive brochure has been removed from act from public access, where they're bragging about you know much more about what the system does. The point is that these these are like filters which can be tasked as in giving it a task they can be tasked with with pulling specific information from the flood so we don't know and we're never going to know probably whether whether in addition to that they're just pouring this into some huge sump somewhere and keeping it all um or they're saving the encrypted stuff for later. We verified that they feel they have the right on the just on the basis of it being encrypted. That's reason enough to be suspicious of it. So they're going to keep that um, for later decryption, perhaps. Maybe then this Norris thing operates in parallel to, in real time, find things that they're actively looking for that it has been tasked to find. Or maybe... It is a filter behind which is storage, so it's only storing things of some specific relevance or interest. And if they're to believed, be believed, it would be selecting things that are that are that are believed to not have a, dome, a domestic uh, endpoints on each end, but at least one end is foreign. Because that was the authorization that they were given was to, was to do this on you know foreign communications, so we just don't know. Uh, but so well, is, I can I can do a little calculation. Well, well, Wolfram Alpha can on the yeah. so according to the IBM, the number of uh, bytes of data in created daily is two point five quintillion bytes. 2.5 quintillion it, bytes of data daily. And by the way, they say 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone. So this, is, this number is getting bigger faster. But let's say it were stayed at, at uh, you know, 2.5 quintillion bytes. Uh, so I asked Wolfram Alpha to convert a quintillion bytes into a zettabyte. And that's one one-thousandth of a zettabyte. Whoa. So <laughs> Every day. So, so, yeah. Something like that. But that's but that makes sense. That's even commensurate with what they're saying, isn't it? That, you know, we're not keeping like it forever. Said, we're keeping it for a few years. Real Just, estate in South Utah, Leo. Right. That's where you want to make. Right. You want to hard drive. You want to build. You want to build. You want you want you want to buy land south of the current facility because they're going to have to grow that sucker. Yeah. So it's two point five exabytes created a day of. Data. I'm kidding, by the way. People do not go buy real estate. <laughs> Just Soon the whole state will be one I, giant data I, center. <laughs> I heard myself. I thought, oh, no, no, no. Okay, do, that's not real estate advice from your security person. Yeah, no, yeah. do not buy no, real don't estate. Listen, in- don't listen to that, man. No. But 2.5 exabytes a day of data is a lot of data, and it's going up uh, exponentially. Yeah. So presumably, though, their capacity is going to go up. And they said 5 zettabytes. Who knows what's, what the real number is. So. Yep, and we got some questions coming up about that, too. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I don't believe anything those sons of guns say. I don't either, no. And they even admit, well, we lie. <laughs> don't believe anything we say. They've even said that because we're spies. Jason in Newcastle, Australia, shares some thoughts about secure email. I thought you'd like this one, Steve. I've been listening to Security Now for a few months, and I've been enjoying it on my long commute to work. Because my commute is so long, I'm currently in the market for a new house to rent closer in. But don't worry, I'll still listen. <laughs> 
So we followed the usual process, found and inspected a property. The agent told us there was an online application to fill in. Being a sysadmin by trade, as well as having terrible handwriting, I thought, fantastic. More services like this should be paperless. I spent an hour filling in the form, then I arrived at the part where you need to verify your identity by uploading your scanned documents, license, payslips, passport, and the like. They had two options on the site. Upload them over an encrypted SSL communi- uh, connection. Or email them. (laughs) Do I even need to say which one I chose? I spent the time scanning and uploading, fighting the irresistible urge to take the quick and easy way out by taking a photo of them and emailing from my phone. Hey, it's my identity at stake here. I'm not taking chances. And they're asking him to prove his identity by sending these documents. So these are identity-proving documents. Yeah, these are are the real deal here. I'm messing around. I finished the application and received a confirmation email informing that I've put in an application for the property. It began by saying, your secure application has been emailed to, insert agent's email address here, need I say more, thanks again for the great products, and passing the time on my drive to work. Oh, God. Well, so, you, yes. Yeah. Uh, the lesson here, <laughs> Exactly. The lesson here is, we've spoken of it before, the weakest link in the chain. Yeah. So, yes, nobody could snoop his connection to their real estate application accepting website. But then, for compatibility's sake, they emailed it all off in the clear to the real estate agent. It's like, here's the proof. Yes. Sigh. Good story, Jason. Thank you for that. Chris Leonetti, Bellevue, Washington. Wonders if the numbers add up. I'm a reference architect for NetApp. And I used to build data centers for Microsoft for five years. Data centers and storage are my life. There's a problem. So, yeah, this guy has standing. Yeah. There's a problem with the NSA's new data center math. Let's assume four terabyte hard drives. Let's assume they use the most dense rack storage available. That's about 60 drives per rack hue of space. Now, wait, wait. Now, stop right there. 60 drives per U. How do you get 60 drives in, in, a, in one U of rack space? That's, I don't know. I don't know. That's amazing, Chris. I wonder if it, yeah, but that doesn't sound right. I know. In a 40RU anyway, rack, I could fit 600 hard drives. So that rack's got 2.4 petabytes. Maybe. Common data center room would, just imagine the cooling. <laughs> a common data center room and the noise. And would, the power. And the power. would contain 90 racks long by 8 rows wide. That room would contain 1.7 exabytes. This this ties in nicely with the calculations we just did, that there's there's 2.5 exabytes of data created every single day. Using 65 megawatts, I could power about six of these rooms. That's closer to 200,000 square feet. The info in the data center states 100,000 square feet of uh, DC space. Really, I thought it was bigger than that. Oh, well, that would give me 10 exabytes. I think the information uh, you have claiming it was a zettabyte must have been wrong. Five exabytes sounds more realistic, and that's still huge. Just want your podcast to be accurate. You're still talking about one million spinning hard drives. For comparison's sake, Microsoft's San Antonio data center is 150 megawatts, half million square feet. And... Another email from Paul in Dallas simplifies the math even further. I love the show, blah, blah, blah. Very high praise. In last week's podcast concerning the NSA and PRISM, you said X number of zettabytes of storage capacity. Surely you meant petabytes or exabytes. To have a zettabyte of storage would require one 
trillion terabyte hard drives. That's just not possible, given the cost of material needed. Have I done my math incorrectly? Okay, so great points, representative of our sharp listeners, many of whom said, uh, "Good critical Steve, thinking." I like that kind of critical thinking. Yep. Now, first of all, I doubt that it was a typo because nobody's ever heard of a zettabyte <laughs> before. So it wasn't like some editor said, eh, what's a big thing? Oh, a zettabyte. You know, so all we know, first of all, this number comes from the NSA. You know, this 65,000. This was their press release, my friends. Yes, this was, <laughs> the, you know. Pick, you know, this is them saying this is what they're building. Now, one thing occurred to me as I'm looking at the cognitive dissonance that this does set up, of course, is, well, are these hard drives? That is, is a hard drive today the most dense right. way we have of storing something? Right. Because hard, lines are, hard drives are inherently online, but nothing says these five zettabytes might not have a basically a massive hard drive cache on the front end and something archival on the back end. I don't I've not bothered to go into the current state of, you know, long-term ultra dense ultra large archiving, but we know for example that Google um with their S3 service allows you to tuck data like further away somewhere. And it takes maybe a day to get it, but they've done something with it. Maybe they just unplugged their hard drive, so they got to go get one and plug it in. That's probably what's going on. But you know, for what it's worth, I mean, we could either we can either say we don't believe the NSA, or we can say, well, maybe we need to think out of the box a little bit more. That it's not just again, everyone just wants to multiply hard drive size, but that assumes that's all we have to work with. And Maybe there is. I haven't looked for a long time. You know, I mean, back in the old days, IBM had all kinds of bizarre technology. They had like spools of of magnetic tape and a robot arm with, you know, it's a big library system. And a robot arm would, would, would swing around, grab a spool, pull it out, and stick it into a reader. So there were a limited number of reader writer stations, but a vast wall of spools. So you couldn't get to them all at once the way you can with a huge hard drive array, but you could get to them eventually. So and this is a slide from the Army Corps of Engineers about the plan. And it gives us, doesn't say data storage, but maybe our audience can crunch some numbers here. 65 megawatts, 60,000 tons of cooling equipment, four 25,000 square foot server facilities. So only 100,000 square feet. Total. Uh, total. So, um, yeah, I have to think there, there must be something more dense than hard drives. Maybe not as fast, but more dense. Do we know that there's not a basement? <laughs> What's in the basement? Maybe there's an elevator that goes way <laughs> down, Leo. Yeah. Don't know. Salt mines, baby. Well, it's, it's a great mystery. It's a puzzle. It is a puzzle. So thank you, listeners, for your, yeah, your good math. Sharpies. Yep. Yeah, and I, I really like it that people are using their critical uh, thinking. I, I I looked at that number and I just got, well, yeah, that sounds right. Is it, Look at yeah, it. Wow. They said it. Must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, they're planning on scaling it to Yada Bytes. Alex wonders, should we be creating our own certificates, Steve, 
forgive me, I'm no expert in the area of certificates. I want to understand. That's why your podcast is the best. So far, I know I can obtain a certificate from, say, CA Cert or my iCloud email. Cert provided by Apple, somehow by default. This is nice, so I can provide verification to my person, but I'd need a recipient to set up something similar on their end, and with that, I and a recipient can send encrypted email to each other. But there is a middleman in this. That's the authority. I guess my question is twofold. Can I trust the authority? Might their certificate be compromised somehow or even stolen, allowing for spoofing of an identity? In the spirit of spirit of suspicion, can I revoke the certificate at any time? Secondly, can I create my own certificate? The answer is probably yes, but how can anyone verify my certificate is trusted? I'd be interested in scenario two because I control the certificate and when it gets revoked and the frequency. Please feel free to edit this question if you intended to use it on their show, but after the NSA situation, I think it's good policy to practice as much encryption as possible. With the Internet today, God knows how important your insights are. One last thing, if I do encrypt, how strong should the encryption be? After all, the NSA has teraflops at their disposal. Hey, the new Mac Pro has teraflops. That's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, zettaflops. Yeah, yeah. Zettaflops. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is a great question, and I want to step back from it a little bit and sort of look at the meta question, which is, and all of our dialogue up to this point, even just in this podcast, has been sort of nudging us in this direction, which is that this, the, the one weakness of the public key encryption technology, the so-called PKI, public key infrastructure, is our reliance on a certificate authority and our need to trust that authority. The authority signs our certificate and... If we trust the signer, then we trust the signing. So the problem is, if we build a system based on that, that is the weakness. And as we saw, if the NSA or law enforcement compelled Google to give up their private key, if they compelled VeriSign to give up their private key, the trusted root certificate authority. I mean, why stop with Google? Go another link up the chain. Get the root authority private keys. The point is, uh, you know, I don't want to get people worried about, you know, whether their tinfoil hats are are tight enough or not. But, but we're at a point now where we're seriously reconsidering the trustworthiness of the public key infrastructure for, you know, on a theoretical basis. And, and again, people can say, well, Gibson, it was never trustworthy. It's like, well, okay, but we now know, we now have more reason for tinfoil than, than we had before. So my bottom line for Alex is the only way that we can have security moving forward, if that's what we really want, is to no longer use the public key infrastructure. And that's essentially what I was referring to last week when I was talking about the Threema communications tool for Android. Uh, and I don't remember if it's iOS also, 
think it is, but not yet BlackBerry. Um, there, you use, you have like three levels of authentication. The highest one, where you get three green dots, requires that the two devices be, be set face-to-face so they can simultaneously cross-snapshot each other's key. And the point is, we only require trusting a third party when that's not possible. When the two parties, the end parties, cannot meet physically, we have to trust a third who has essentially met them each. So the third party has met Alice and the third party has met Bob and is able then to assert to Bob and Alice that they are each who they claim. Well, if we can't trust that the third leg of that stool, then, you know, Bob and Alice have to meet. When they meet, they can securely exchange keys and then that's what we're reduced to, essentially. That's where we are today is rather than trusting a third party, we can arrange to to essentially cut any third party out of the loop. And I think we're going to see utilities more and more in the future, like Threema, that say, okay, this is this is what we do now. I don't know about Windows. Mac has a uh, easy way to generate your own certificates, self-signed certificates. You can create one. You can create a certificate authority even. Or create a certificate for someone else as a certificate authority. Um, so you can set yourself up as a CA. This is with the Apple's built-in uh, keychain access. It's in every single Mac that shipped. There also is, of course, I use PGP or Open uh, PGP. Uh, the GNU Privacy Guard is my choice because I like open source software for this kind of stuff. You really want to use open source. Yeah. And, and the notion there is when you use that is that you create your own keys. No one else has access to your private key except you. And then you send your public key to a key server. And then what you want to do is you could either have a signing party. This is the the third the, the, the thing you talked about where you get together in physical presence and you sign people's keys because the more people who said, yeah, yeah, that's Leo's key, the more likely it is, in fact, Leo's key. Right. And uh, and so what I can do is give out the hex number. It's a, you know, I don't know, it's 10 digits or 10 hex digits. That is my key and say, that's me. I could do it out on the air, for instance. Say, please sign that key. That is me. And then people would sign it. So, um that keeps the third. That keeps a government party out of it entirely. You still, right. no one has your private key if you generate your own certificate or you create your own PGP key. And no, yes, no single, no single centralized authority is making any representations. Right. right. That's yep. the negative. Is that you have to have you know? There's it's a circle. Is what they call this in PGP terms a circle of trust. Yep. Um, but I think that that's increasingly. You know, we got to do more of that. Mm. I think. Um, the fingerprint. Yeah, that's what that, whatever 10-digit code is. Uh, Christian Loris, Melbourne, Florida, says maybe General Petraeus gives you a more more conclusive proof of Steve Prism's, Steve's prison theory. In your assertion that the NSA didn't need to be directly in bed with Google or Facebook, I, I, let's consider the story of General Petraeus's covert communication techniques with his girlfriend. Uh, going on the assumed facts that SSL is secure, 
and that and he well, he was using Gmail, I think, right? And yes. that Prism is picking up the streams of unencrypted email and other traffic outside the major providers. General Petraeus communicated with his mistress via a shared draft folder on Gmail. That's pretty clever, isn't it? He didn't even mail them. Uh-huh. He had a share. He just would create a draft and save it, and they both could log into that server. He knew that almost anybody communicating with Gmail's website is not suspicious to the NSA collection efforts. Too many people use it to make it interesting in most circumstances. Gmail's SSL is secure and or difficult to break unless the NSA has a very specific set of traffic it wants to crack or has their <laughs> private yeah. keys. NSA Prism would need some very specific information before getting a warrant that Google would be happy to comply with. General Petraeus and his mistress would securely connect to Gmail, leave emails for each other in the draft folder of their shared account. Boy, that's clever. I'll have to remember that next time I want to have yeah. a girlfriend. The, mess- <laughs> <laughs> the message would never leave Google's data center. And never be seen by Prism. Yeah, this pretty pretty much backs up the fact that many of Google or Facebook's, many of the Googles or Facebooks, may not have been <laughs> complicit in the spying. At the time, Petraeus was caught doing this. It was also commented this was a common technique used by drug dealers and terrorists to stay off the radar. This points to an awareness of the types of collection efforts that might be in use by law enforcement or the NSA. Yeah, you think Petraeus. What was he? Was he uh, F- head of the FBI, right? What was his uh, job at the time? I can't even well, remember. I think he was he, he was in Afghanistan. I think yeah, he no, was... but he then he came home and he was. Um, oh he, yeah, yeah. No, director remember. of the CIA. He was a CIA oh, director. Well, okay. So presumably he knows and knew <laughs> what's going on all about yep. Prism, right? Yep. And knew what the capabilities were and thought and he probably thought though that he wasn't a subject anyway. Yeah, at the he, time, he, I thought he, this was silly for them. Get, he didn't want, yeah, great. I'm sorry. But now, in light of everything we've learned, it actually makes sense. So he was doing what he thought would be safe. And obviously, now, as I remember, he, I think he turned over his Gmail at, you know, when he was being investigated. I don't when think. When he turned over his resignation. Well, but, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember the whole deal yeah, there. But it's, it is, it is germane. The, the director of the CIA considered this a relatively secure method. Mm hmm. And did not well, send and, emails. And, he said, no, we're not going to send emails back and forth. Yes, that would be a no, bad idea. Exactly. Notice what he wasn't doing. He right. wasn't doing what everybody else is doing, right. except the terrorists and the, the, the drug, drug dealers. dealers. They all, they, and say, again, we're the last to know. Everybody yeah. else are, all, already knew all of this that was going on. <laughs> Apparently. So, uh, <laughs> it's the honest folks. Yep. Duh. Uh, Andrew Stevenson, Dorset, UK points out a great resource. Stephen Leo, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has put together a nice list of alternative programs that can be used to help thwart tracking by the NSA's PRISM program, prism-break.org. Interestingly, near the bottom of the list when detailing alternatives to iOS, it simply states that it is insecure since it contains hardware tracking. Do not use. I like the name PRISM Break, but it does make it's- presumptions about what to, you know, presumptions about how prison works that we just don't know. Well, right? it, it it is a it's an interesting page, and it's a little sad um, in in places. For example, um, uh, wow, they just changed it, huh? Mm-hmm. They, they they changed it from this morning when I was looking at it because it it made a sweeping statement about uh, under web browser category about it says Apple Safari, Google Chrome, and IE as proprietary. 
And over on her notes, it said, uh, you know, you can't really use any of these browsers because we have no idea what's going on in them. And I was like, whoa. Or um, wait, maybe it was operating systems. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Cloud storage. So they've got three columns, or two columns, proprietary and free alternatives, and presumably the free open source alternatives. Well, I don't know. This is a, this. Stop reporting your online. This it's not really clear what they're saying at this point. Are they saying yeah. that the free alternatives are safe? Um, well, they've got a column of proprietary and different categories, then a column of free alternatives, which they are they're endorsing in lieu of these right. proprietary ones, right. and then notes to like embellish, you know, like here are the concerns and here are the issues. So instead of the, using PayPal or Google Wallet, use Bitcoin or other alternative cryptocurrencies, for instance. Right, right. Uh, and I guess when they use the word free, they're not saying free as in beer. They're saying free as in freedom. Uh, and they do say it. iOS is insecure. There is no free alternative to iOS. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, I do I do commend our listeners to it. Prism, prism-break.org. Wow. Good stuff. There. It's a good name. <laughs> Jack Fairfax, Virginia, wondering whether Chrome convenience is going just a bit too far. Steve, not sure if this has come up on security now. At work, my PC is pretty much locked down. And so many sites were non-functional under Internet Explorer. The admin agreed to install Chrome. I promptly added NoScript and Watt, W-O-T, extensions. When I got home, I was at first quite pleased to find that the same extensions had automatically installed when I fired up Chrome on my Mac. If you have syncing turned on, that's what will happen, by the way. While I appreciate the convenience of extensions replicating across installations and the consistency of experience this offers users, I had a tinge of concern that I had made a change at work, but it affected my computer at home. I wasn't aware of the behavior. Well, dude, you turned it on. So it was a surprise to me. This is often the case. People turn things on and forget. And so it's not on by default? No. Okay. In this case, a pleasant one, which is what Google is, of course, intending, but couldn't the same mechanism be a foot in the door for someone up to no good, yet asks you if you want to have uh, syncing turned on. Um, it walks you through this. In the converse, but probably he hadn't installed Chrome in a while, right? In the converse situation, could someone sit down at my Mac at home while I get a beer and install a nefarious extension, which quietly replicates to my desktop at work? I realize all bets are off if someone gains local access to a device, but in this case is the remote system at risk as well. So I think they're they're saved a little bit by the fact that it's off by default. Um, but, I mean, he, he's certainly right. This is another classic example of convenience versus security. There, I mean, it's absolutely convenient to have your Chromes syncing through the cloud, um, even to the extent of installing extensions on other Chromes that you install on one. But... I mean, yes, this could be used as a as a foothold uh, to like get something nefarious in a in a work environment. Essentially, the problem is that the Chrome in this instance is is creating a bridge between two different security perimeters. You've got your your high security perimeter at work and your relatively low security perimeter at home, you know, where you're having beer and your friends are over and they're screwing around with your Mac. Um, and there's really a really easy thing to turn off. Good. And it's completely granular. You can say, 
sync bookmarks, don't sync extensions, sync settings, but don't sync themes. You can totally good, do good, it. Good for Chrome. Uh, yeah, I think that the this is an example of a problem exists between computer and keyboard or whatever that is. Pebcac. <laughs> right? And I, I sync everything because I, I feel fairly secure in the knowledge that... You have control of your environment. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. these extensions... Uh, Chrome is pretty good about not installing uh, dangerous extensions. Uh, although I, I can't say that there's definitely no dangerous extensions installed. But. Wolfgang Munst in Munich, Germany offers a note about our podcast length and composition. <laughs> Just heard on the recent episode of Security Now, some listeners want to shorten the show or keep the general stuff out. Please don't. I totally enjoy the way it is. Actually, prefer to broaden my horizon every now and then with content I've never come into contact with before. Thanks to you and Leo. Hopefully, we'll see at least another 400 episodes of Security Now. Thank you, Wolfgang. Very yeah, nice. and this does echo many sentiments that I saw after um, that that discussion that you and I had about this uh, last week or the week before. A lot of people saying, hey, no, don't change it. It's what we want. You know, you guys rambling around a little bit and talking about other stuff, that's good, too. So thank you, everybody. Question 11 from Adam, Washington, D.C. He wonders, when are you going to be in Petaluma again? <laughs> Steve, I'm a high school student, rising senior. Congratulations, Adam, from Washington, D.C., who over the past two years or so has become an avid listener of Security Now. This gives me hope for the youth of our nation. Since I discovered the show, my interest in the field of Internet security has grown immensely. And it's thanks to you that a lot of my knowledge about the finer details of technology have expanded. So... I've become just giddy, <laughs> giddy about understanding security-related issues. Thank you very much for the hard work you've put in each week to create such a fantastic netcast. My family and I will be heading to California this summer. Oh, I guess he's in Washington State. No, this is Washington, D.C. We'll be heading down to California this summer for vacation. And I've convinced them to take a detour on our trip down the coast to visit the Brick House on Wednesday, August 21st. In order to see Security Now live, I heard at the end of episode 408 on PRISM, you might be in-house one of the weeks in August. And I was wondering if you might have any more details on what week that would be. Getting to meet you in person would be unbelievable, but I'd still be thrilled by the experience of seeing the show live and in person. Regardless of when you'll be in town, let this message serve as a huge thank you for all the time you've dedicated to the show I know it's a lot of work and can guarantee I'm not the only one you've inspired with your service, Adam. Man, this kid is eloquent. He is. What a good writer. Yeah. Wow. So when are you going to be in town? Unknown. Oh. Um, I will I will aim for the 21st. Um, you know, I'm coming up to, to, to hang out for a while with, with Jennifer, uh, my girlfriend, and she's going to be up visiting people in Northern California. And so I'm going to definitely try to make it a Wednesday or a Sunday, so either either uh security now or twit um but i just don't know yet um jenny, jenny is great on plans and running around but not that one uh, <laughs> i never i never really know until she says didn't i tell you that no honey i didn't i didn't get the word so uh I, as soon as i know i will let everyone know because it'd be great to to see listeners uh when i'm going to be around so i uh, other people have asked and i just I, I don't know yet but as soon as i get a date I will, uh, on the podcast preceding it or more, I will say. So thank you very much. And, and Adam, thanks for the Jenny, really great Jenny, note. make up your mind. <laughs> Figure out when you're coming down here, up here. 
So, uh, Steve, that that concludes this reading, this dramatic oh, reading of God. 11 questions from our vast audience. Until next week when we're going to plow into the technology of of handshaking and SSL connections and what can be done, the details of perfect forward secrecy, and which really is getting a lot of attention now relative to, you know, the NSA's presumed uh, interest in you know, sucking up the content and decrypting it uh, at a later date. Well, friends, this is the deal. You must go now to grc.com. You must browse through the vast stacks of information. You must purchase a copy of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and knowing that you will get a free upgrade to the Mac-compatible version whenever it is available. Yep. You must... Even before. You must, if you have, even before, you must have, if you have questions, go to grc.com slash feedback. If you would like to download a copy of this podcast in glorious 16 kilobit audio, which sounds a little bit like it was recorded in the 18th century, (laughs) down a tube, but small, small, you can get that from grc.com. He also has, Steve has great uh, transcriptions written by hand by a human uh, all at grc.com. We keep full quality audio and video available at our site, twit.tv slash sn. Uh, and we, you can even watch us do this show live, which we do every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC. Twit.tv is the place for that. Hey, Steve, have a great week. Have a great fourth. Are you doing something uh, tomorrow, day after tomorrow? I'm going to no, be coding. tomorrow. That's tomorrow. I hope, I, I hope coding. I'm coding up a storm. I'm going to just code away. It's a, you know... Quiet days like that give me more chance to work. So that's coding by the rocket's red glare. That'll be Steve. (laughs) That's great. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.